This is a WTOP original podcast. From Podcast One. Previously on Colors. Burlington, Vermont is more than 80% white. The last time I was called the N-word was in 1996 in Mankato, Minnesota. And I remember it because you remember stuff like that. Here in Vermont, it's more a frequent uh, word that is tossed in my direction. Taisha Green, as you may have surmised, is an African-American. And she's not just a resident of Burlington, Vermont. She is the Director of Racial Equity, Inclusion and Belonging for the city. Coming up in this episode of Colors. It's so weird that we're 911 Nation. Patrick Skinner is a police officer in Savannah, Georgia, and he says that's a part of the problem in this country. I mean, we say if you see anything that makes you uncomfortable, call 911. It is a terrible way to run a society. And the outspoken former CIA officer says the large volume of 911 calls can lead to police being called for things that they shouldn't be called for. Then who should? And the answer is a lot of people before the 911 call. It's a new community-based approach when it comes to policing circulating around the country. That's coming up in this episode of Colors. Simmering racial tensions. Segregation now and tomorrow and forever. Fighting injustice. I have a dream. Conflict looming. Brutality exposed. I can't breathe. I can't breathe. The search for solutions starts here. From WTOP in Washington, D.C. This is Colors, a dialogue on race in America. Check the mic and make sure it sound right, boys. is colors. JJ, uh, a week or so ago from the time we're recording this, I read a piece written by a guy named Patrick Skinner that was published in the Tampa Bay Times. And it was about a guy who used to work at the CIA who somehow ended up in Savannah, Georgia as a beat cop. And he was talking about the, uh, you know, the, the whole situation with George Floyd and uh, and Chauvin and the verdict and all that. And he pointed out why police officers need to need to care about that. And I thought to myself, that would be a great guest to have on Colors. Little did I know that you know this guy. <laughs> Tell me about it. Yeah, you know, I saw the same article. Um, Patrick Skinner is his name. And um, as you said, yes, he did work at the CIA. He's also in the Coast Guard and he worked for the Capitol Police at one point. Uh, so he's had uh, a number of jobs, but he was with the CIA for eight years and then he left and joined the Sufan Group, which is uh, one of the security companies that sort of advises companies on how to protect themselves. They have corporate customers. And he used to write this uh, briefing every day about threats to the U.S. and to their clients. And I met him during that time because a lot of what he did because of uh, his connection to the Sufan group had to do with terrorism. So this was probably about 10 years ago, almost. And so I interviewed him quite frequently. Well, he left, went and came a beat cop, as you mentioned, back in Savannah, Georgia, which is his hometown. And I scratched my head about that at the time. But thinking about it, that's just Patrick. He is truly dedicated to home 
and everything that has to do with life and fairness and equality and, you know, all those good things. And yeah, so I saw that same piece and I thought, you know, I haven't spoken to him in years. So let me reach out and see if I can get him to come on. And he did. And boy, you know, the interview that he did to me says more about the situation that we're in right now than anything else we've done because it comes from a man who's a cop who also understands what it's like to be on the other side of the barrel of a gun. Absolutely. And he's written several op-ed pieces that have gotten a lot of attention, as you mentioned, Chris, around the country. And there seems to be a theme in these pieces. And that theme is police like me. I don't think that anything I'm, I say is uh, unique or new. I mean, I know it's not new and I don't think it's unique. Um, and that a lot of my colleagues, you know, immediate in my department and far and wide, believe the same thing. I just have a larger platform. You wrote one recently uh, for the Washington Post that says, I'm a cop. The Chauvin verdict is a message for me and my colleagues. What's that message? Um, at least certainly for me, it was that uh, I needed to change it. Uh, not just what I was doing, because I try to do the job right, but to try to take it personally. I mean, the whole thing was for the last four years, um, I'm, you know, I'm still basically a rookie cop. I, I'm very aware of the terrible history of policing in America. I mean, it is a racist, you know, history, especially in the South. And I, I'm very aware of that. And I try to, you know, work around that or, you know, try to counter that and everything I do. And, uh, and so I wouldn't take any criticism personally um, because I thought that was how I should do my job because that's how you don't get angry. And that's how you um, never get defensive and being defensive is the worst thing you can do individually as a cop. And it's certainly, I mean, cancerous uh, professionally to the overall profession of cops. If you're defensive, we see that a lot. And so I did that. And uh, so, you know, I wouldn't take the slings and arrows um, personally. I would be called terrible things. That's great. Um, And then when there was out, you know, police abuse or police crime, um, people would, you know, associate me with that. And I get that. I I do get that. Um, I just wouldn't take it personally because I thought that was the way I could just keep doing my job and never get defensive. And then after the Chauvin verdict, um, I mean, the whole murder, I mean, it's on video and you're watching it and there's cops standing there. And, and then there's this reflexive circle, the wagons, you know, he, he may have done something wrong. Uh, then I realized, I know I need to take this personally. Um, and it wasn't like I just opened my eyes. Some people have said, Oh, you're just now figuring it out. Well, no, no, I'm not, but I'm just trying to figure out a way to do my job. And, uh, so I decided that we have to take this personally. Every cop has to be, I mean, outraged and you have to be personally outraged. And that's the only way the profession can change. Well, forgive me for asking what probably is an obvious answer, but just for those who may not be following as closely, outraged about what? Uh, outraged that, I mean, so the, the police, the state murdered this guy on video. I mean, it was a murder I mean, that we can say now legally it was a murder. But before that, it was a murder in broad daylight and that the other police officers stood there and watched. And I and they were you know, I understand that they were being trained, new officers. Um, there's something dreadfully wrong if you don't want to act to save somebody when your entire point of your job is to help people. Um, and so I was outraged at the murder outraged at the trial. Um, 
outraged at the fact that we're a nation of 333 million people. I don't know, 200, whatever, 30 um, years old. And we're still trying to figure, well, (laughs) we're still trying to deny history and current events and that so much was riding on this one trial. I mean, so much was riding and, and that it was still suspenseful. Like, would another jury say that it was reasonable that an unarmed person died over a misdemeanor? You know, I mean, there are reasons why that could happen, but in this case, no, there wasn't. And, um, and so that would, would another jury say, yeah, the cops can do basically whatever they want. And I'm a cop and I, I say, no, we can't, of course not. Okay. So you've taken it personally. Now what? Well, that's, that's the thing. I, 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 I don't really like speaking out that much. I like writing <laughs> because I was an English major. And, uh, and so I like writing and then, you know, I try to pick my spots and I have a full-time job. Um, and so writing is safe for me because I pretty much control exactly what the output is. Um, they get rid of the comma splices, but I control it. Um, but radio and then certainly TV uh, I don't control, you know, I don't control that at all. And I don't really like doing it. Um, I mean, I know you, so <laughs> this is different, but, um, I, and so I, I think I have to find a way to, to broadcast louder without being annoying, which is you know probably impossible, um, that I have to continue to do my job the way I think it has to be done. And then I also have to help others, somehow realize that we don't need to tinker on the edges of reform. We need literally to change what it means to be a police officer in America. So, yeah, in, you know, in full transparency, you and I have known each other, I think probably close to a decade. And although we haven't been in touch for a good long, a good long time, certainly since you've been at the Savannah police department, although I have followed the mean cat, sweet dog tweets that you do all the time. Uh, which, yeah, that's pretty the most important stuff I do. <laughs> I'll admit I think, it. Which I think is really interesting, especially considering the stressful job that you as a police officer have. Um, but the you know, and this is a podcast, but and I appreciate you speaking here considering yeah, I've always known that you haven't really been that comfortable talking on radio, but I appreciate you coming to do this. But I want to ask you this particular question. So, you know, that's what you're doing. Now, what is your, your writing? So now what for the rest of the police across America that you're speaking to now that, you know, you've taken this personally, um, any thoughts on maybe possibilities for them? Yeah, actually that's a, a great, and uh, a question I haven't been asked before. And I probably haven't even really thought about it because I'm just, you know, like we, we, I'm one of those people, you know, we have to do something. And then of course, you know, you say, okay, what is that? Um, I, I I don't know how to, we change it because it's so massive, but I do know that that's not a reason not to do it. Um, In fact, I always say that's, you know, there are, there are many options between doing something wrong and doing nothing because a lot of times they'll say, Oh, if we can't do this, we'll let every criminal go. And so I, yeah, we have to reform. Well, we we reform. Sure. We'll stick with that word. Uh, We'll reform the police, but it has to be, I think it has to be something that I, I think it has to be the way I see how the job has to be done, that it has to be done at an individual level repeated every single day. And then, you know, each shift of a police department 
has to go out and say, this is how we're doing this. But it also has to be involved with the community that they work in and live in, hopefully, um, because they're the ones that decide, hey, these are the priorities. You know, we are really tired of this. This is what you, we want you to focus on. Um, and then when they start saying, okay, we want you to focus on this and it's not crime, which we get a lot of, then we could, you know, hopefully the elected officials, senior police officials, which I am most certainly not, uh, can say, okay, well, these aren't crimes. And now when you introduce a police officer with a gun and a badge, it starts, it's a police matter. Um, and so we, we need to figure out when, why are you calling 911 for this? Or if you call 911, should the cops be the only one that shows up? Or, the, you know, it's, it's so weird that we're a 911 nation. I mean, we say, if you see anything that makes you uncomfortable, call 911. And one that's crazy. I mean, I, I get it because it's the most, it's the most liability free uh, slogan, but it is a terrible way to run a society. There's a homeless guy or a guy on the ground over here. And I'm going to call 911 instead of going over and literally saying, Hey, are you okay? Um, and I get why they do that because we're a 911 nation. But when you do that, that means the cops are coming and that shouldn't be a bad thing, but it's probably not the most appropriate thing. And again, I'm not taking us off the hook just because we're not, you know, animal catchers, dog or mental health specialists, uh, mechanics, uh, structural engineers, firefighters, whatever it is we get called for. That's not an excuse to mishandle it. Um, but we can't keep saying, well, we're not supposed to do all this stuff. And then just keep doing it at some point, which hopefully Jesus, God, we need that at some point um, we say, okay, then who should? And the answer is a lot of people before the 911 call for me, defunding the police always meant funding all the stuff that led that stops people from calling 911. Well, you know, starting at the back end of that, um, I, I, I agree. I, I hear what you're saying about the defund the police idea. I think it's ridiculous because nobody's going to do that and nobody should do it because it would essentially <laughs> turn everything upside down, including all the work that folks like you have done for the good of the country for a long time. Um, but, you know, I hear what you're saying about this, the 911 nation business is, is kind of out of control. I was speaking with the uh, director of a major terrorism research organization um, a couple days ago, and he said, you know, what we ought to be doing is involving other people in this whole process in our neighborhoods when we have issues, and that includes, you know, crisis intervention people, um, you know, uh, clergy, um, you know, people who are involved, community leaders to help with situations like that. And I thought that was a very interesting take because he said pretty much what you said is that, you know, we can't solve all of this with the police because especially right now, people are not sure where to go. Police officers are trying to figure that, find their way forward and people are trying to find their way forward in terms of dealing with the police. One thing you said in an op-ed that you wrote for the Washington Post, again, I think this was in July of 2020, has to do with police officers in the neighborhood and owning up to who they are. And you said, we're police officers. You should know our name. That goes for Portland, too. What did you mean by that? Um, specifically, that was about um, the 
state, local, but also more increasingly at that time, the federal response where they were doing uh, riot control. And, uh, but it was, you know, long-term protest control slash riot control. And they were covering up not just their names, but their agencies, um, their badge, whatever, whatever identifiers they have. And it just, I mean, that infuriated me because, <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I worked in a job where I had literally a, a pseudonym. I had a, you know, alias. And I, I mean, I get why you would want to do that. But the whole point of having a badge, you know, because like in my old job in the CIA, I didn't have a shirt that said CIA and I walk around with my real name because there was a point to that, that the clandestinity and the uh, anonymity was like literally how to do the job. The, the police work, except for very minor, you know, undercover situations, the whole point is to be open, is to be transparent. That's why you have a badge on your chest. And you can't have a badge on your chest if you don't have your name there or if you don't have your department. Because then that's something you can buy at Target or Amazon. And, and, and we always demand that we identify everybody. Everybody I talk to, I have to know who they are. If you can't identify yourselves in certain situations, we start to have some kind of issues. But at the, and, we, and so we demand accountability and identity from everybody we you know, encounter. But at the moment of maximum pressure, the police profession, law enforcement, and I, I think there's a difference between law enforcement and policing, um, that they refuse to identify or be accountable. And that's crazy. You know, you're, you again are very right about this. You clearly thought a lot about this, this whole situation that we as a nation are in and certainly police and communities are in. Um, What's your message to the angry cops right now? Because I've had a couple of situations where I've spoken to police officers in the last year, uh, and they have said to me, and one very specifically said, we're done. Because you, speaking of me as a journalist, and lumping me in with politicians, said what you have done is you have thrown us all under the bus because of Derek Chauvin, and you've indicted us all, and you have made us targets, and you have made life miserable for our families. Uh, and there has been all sorts of legislation that's sweeping the country uh, that has made our job tougher to do. Case in point, um, Montgomery County, Maryland, which is where I live, you can get arrested for drinking a beer on the street, but you can't for smoking a joint. And the people who are involved in much of this behavior recognize that the problem is not the joint or the beer mm -hmm. to me, it's the behavior after they do mm -hmm. it, you know, whether that's under control or not. And in many cases, it's not under mm -hmm. control. And a lot of police officers feel frustrated that they can't do anything. And as you say, us as 911 nation, we call the cops when something's wrong. And then when they can't arrest people who are acting out, because of rules that have been changed, they get the blame. So this police officer said, we're done. We're not going above and beyond anymore because what you did was you didn't give us the, the benefit of the doubt. So what's your message to mm -hmm. these folks? Well, I, I say then probably quit. I mean, I, I, I want to be sympathetic. I do. And uh, you should, cops family should never be at risk. I, you know, but, um, that's out, outrageous and unacceptable. But if you feel that the democratic society laws stop you from being a police officer, then quit. Um, and, and, and you'll feel better. You'll be better. You can go do with something else. And then your neighbors will probably feel better. Now there is an issue about like, um, 
smaller crimes leading to real crime. But that's not a police officer issue. I mean, that's literally a law issue or a priority issue. I'm not frustrated when I see action. I mean, because we that the, like, okay, so we can't arrest a guy who's got a joint, um, you know, because it's legalized at under an ounce, which by the way is a tremendous amount <laughs> of thought. And so, uh, and so, and that might lead to something else. I, I get it. Um, but we also used to do that with homeless, you know, homeless neighbors and people in mental distress, you know, we're not arresting them, but they're causing massive issues. Most, you know, uh, commonly to themselves they're, they're terrifying, but they're also terrified of what's happening to, them, to themselves. And we never really said, I'm going to quit because we're not helping the homeless neighbors. You know, no one ever said, well, we, we can't do our job properly because 90, let's go 75% of the calls we go on aren't crime. And we can't solve that because we're not in the solving business. We're not, we're not solving anything. Um, and for the most part, we probably shouldn't because that's not the job, but at each 911 call, you, whatever the call is, you handle it. And I don't see a lot of cops quitting because they're frustrated that we didn't get to help this homeless person or we didn't help this battered family. Uh, we didn't help this business. That's, you know, all these reasons, but now it's okay. We couldn't arrest this guy for marijuana. I, I we can't do our job. Well then, okay. Then find a new job. I mean, I'm, I'm increasingly unsympathetic towards the entitlement that my profession that I have where we tell people what their priorities are. We tell them how we do our job that we tell them these are, this is how we, not only the laws that we're going to enforce, but this is how we're going to do it. And that's not how policing works. I mean, there's this whole Robert Peel uh, foundation from the United Kingdom about the consent of policing. It comes from, you know, your neighbors and that's not like quaint. That's the job. And it increases. And if, if you had to ask me, how can we fix something, you know, policing, I would say go uh, focus on the consent of your neighbors. So, Patrick, what about the nuances of this situation? Um, they're, they're, you know, every neighborhood is different. Every situation is different. And uh, what I was getting at when I said earlier that defund the police is ridiculous was not, was, was not that there isn't something that can, can be done. Uh, I believe that it was actually from the beginning designed to provoke thought, not necessarily a mm -hmm. thing that was people were serious about happening because they recognized that could just wreck everything. Um, but one of the problems that I do have though, is that there are a lot of folks, politicians and journalists like me who are going out without thinking this thing through pushing for all of these changes that seem right on paper and seem noble. Uh, and I have this thing called, <laughs> Uh, noble causes and suspicious motives. But at the, at the end of the day, a lot of the folks who are pushing these particular ideas are not doing it for these communities, for our communities. They're doing it for themselves, for their own, um, for their own, um, you know, objectives. And that I think is wrong. The, you know, the idea to me about making these changes should be so that it's better for everyone. And, you know, at the end of the day, you know, I think police, need to be under a big fat never blinking microscope that's always on and is always you know checking out what they do but i do think at the same time what needs to happen is when they do something good they need to be told about it 
and people need to let the cops know that. But, you know, they should be held accountable every single step of the way, but there has to be some good um, that's thrown their way when they do things, when cops like you, police officers like you do things, you know, that, that, that help the communities. And I'm just not seeing a whole lot of that right now publicly. Yeah, I mean, I... I don't try to tell people what they mean when they say defund the police. Um, I'm probably, I mean, the most people I talk to, you know, of course it's a self-selecting circle um, kind of are on the way of what I were, or you're talking about, like, you know, funding other things that lead you to need the police less. And because you're going to need the police. I mean, the police can do a couple things really, really well. Um, we're not good social workers, um, but we, that's not an excuse, but we, we should focus on violent crime. I mean, and, and because really importantly, repeat violent offenders, because most shooters always shoot until they're stopped. Uh, robbers, burglars, you know, that's, even though it's not a violent crime, it's still, well, <laughs> pretty bad. Uh, those kind of crimes, cops can do a tremendous, you know, service to their community by taking that handful of people out. And that, and so that's, you know, that's real policing. Um, and, but what other people mean by it, yeah. I mean, I, I don't think all cops are terrible. Of course not. I'm a cop. Um, I, 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 most cops are great. I, in fact, I, don't, I, wasn't, I didn't train my department. They trained me. You know? I, didn't, I didn't make them like, you know, like me. They made me like them. I just uh, put a lot of thought into it because I'm you know, 50 years old. I've done a bunch of other dumb stuff. And I think about it a lot because – I, I live right here. I see the people that I encounter every single day. And it's just been an interesting way to work. Um, but so, yeah, I mean, I, I get rid of all police. No, that's, that's I mean, I, I think that would be <laughs> bad. Uh, I think I saw that movie escape from New York. Um, but, but, the, but there are a lot of options in between, like you said, um, I don't know what other people's motives are. Um, I'm just focused on what I can do. Um, I do know that anything that highlights the good in anything is as long as the good is there. If you highlight the good and then try to repeat it the next day, that's a good thing. You know, one thing that you have done aside from the um, very clear eyed and, and honest words that you have shared in your op-eds and certainly here on this program is bring to the table you know, truth, which is something that, you know, a lot of people haven't really dealt with and don't deal with it until just saying in my case, sometimes until we're forced to, you know, uh, the stand around culture, uh, you're talking about the situation where police watched Derek Chauvin do what he did for whatever reason. I guess the last thing I want to ask you is, you know, there have been a couple of occasions where people, have stood around and watched their fellow citizens be attacked, like in New York with a couple of the elderly Asian people who were attacked, Asian and Pacific Islander brothers and sisters who've been attacked in the last year. Well, it's been happening forever, but certainly mm -hmm. a lot more publicly in the last you know year or so. Uh, do you, how much of that? How much of that do you think has to do with the way our culture is now? People a lot. Yeah. yeah, I'm sorry to interrupt. A lot. I mean, I, I, I normally don't watch a lot of videos and stuff like that, but I, I saw one uh, attack in New York where I think it was an elderly Asian American guy. Uh, I think it was at an ATM or something. And a guy walked up behind him and couldn't tell what he had. It looked like an antenna or something. 
or some kind of long stick or something. And he, he hit the guy and he hurt him pretty bad. The guy falls down. And then everybody, like you said, just kind of stared. And they're like, and everybody kept, you could tell they're like, man, someone should do something. <laughs> you know, man, somebody should do that. That guy who just committed an aggravated battery felony is walking. And I don't mean running. He's literally walking down the street now holding the evidence of the crime. Um, and it wasn't like he had a gun or a knife where you probably want to really think before you <laughs> run up to that guy. Um, but yeah, I was just like, there's like 30 people standing there. You could just tackle the guy. Um, I don't, you know, I don't believe in vigilante justice, but if something's happened in front of you, you have to do something about it. Um, the good, all, you know, good isn't on duty or off duty. It just is. And helping your neighbor, especially who just got violently hit. Um, that's an imperative. That's a moral imperative. You have to act. Um, mm -hmm. and we, t we tell police officers, you know, you need to police your own, um, and, uh, you know, act, act, act. Well, we also should, you know, protect our neighbors however we can i mean that does that happen often no but when it does when your elderly neighbor is abused act when anybody is abused or hit act um i mean don't go overboard but again i i i don't like when people say oh well, you're encouraging people to kill people no again once again i the only time i ever get frustrated um is when i people i say look there are other options between doing nothing and doing it wrong there's like an entire universe of options and it applies to us police officers every day, every 911 call. And that probably should apply to everybody. I mean, there, is, there are other options between doing nothing and then doing something wrong. You're going out to work after we're done. You're a police officer in Savannah, Georgia. What happens if you run into a George Floyd situation or an Andrew Brown Jr. situation or a Micaiah Bryant situation? What are you going to do? Um, I think that because I, I talk to myself all the time, uh, I talk to my neighbors all the time, but I talk to myself more and I always tell myself, pay attention, you know, see that, you know, actually see what you're seeing, understand what you're seeing, slow down. Um, there split seconds or it's, you know, it happens. I mean, split second does happen like the, uh, the one in Ohio, uh, with a knife. I mean, that's, that's about as close as you can get to split second. And those are terrible situations. Um, so that's, you're probably just going to react. There's not much you can do about it. Um, but for almost everything else, 99.9% .9 of the things slow down. I, I need to slow down. I need to make sure my judgment is catching up to my actions. I need in fact, they should in, inform my actions and that at every stage, uh, the safety and well-being of my neighbors is paramount. I, I don't want to get hurt. I don't want to die, but you know what? Uh, my neighbor's safety trumps mine. And that's not like heroic. That's just literally the point of the job. Um, same thing with firefighters. I mean, it's same thing with a lot of jobs. I mean, a lot of jobs. Um, and so that's just something you have to say, okay, their safety trumps mine. That doesn't mean I have to be you know, unsafe a lot, but it means that at every stage, their safety comes first. And that if I'm wrong, I'm going to err on the side of them that they get the benefit of the doubt every single time. And if I see, you know, if I see wrong, I'm going to act. Um, I, I see wrong all the time and I act. It's, it's funny. People are always like, until you rat out other cops, you know, you're, you're part of the problem. And I get that, but it's, it's really not like in the movies, even though the Chauvin thing was that example where you're looking at that. Um, most cops want to do the right thing. 
Um, a lot of times uh, the high profile ones are a little, they're all inexcusable. Um, a lot of the times when you see something, you're like, I know why that happened. And it happened because we're afraid of our neighbors. And that's because of the, the whole culture of an us versus them of warriors and this war on crime, which means you have to have an enemy. And that's the other people, anybody, um, this whole thing of civilians versus cops when cops are civilians. Um, and so I just try every single day. I try to just uh, do the job the way I think my grandma would want me to do it. And that's being, you know, thoughtful, um, not afraid, <laughs> just, but not macho, but just, I mean, just be thoughtful, uh, be brave. And the fact that I have the support of my neighbors and act or don't act. Thank you for joining us. And I hope that you will remain um, focused and safe uh, in your work. Uh, and hopefully we'll have another chance to engage and uh, good luck to you and your family and everything you're doing. Thanks a lot, JJ. You're listening to Colors. My name is Hagar Shamali, and I'm from Connecticut. I'm American Lebanese, and because of the experiences my parents had during the Civil War in Lebanon, they told me every day how lucky I was to be born in the United States. I love this country, which is why I'm so heartbroken at how endemic and horrific racism is here. I don't know how we eradicate it. I only believe that if racism can be eliminated anywhere, it should be here. I may be an optimist, but I see a real shift in the conversations on racism today. They seem more open, real, and deep, and more people seem willing to learn. And so with a lot of work, I genuinely believe we'll get to a point where racism becomes a thing of the past. This is Colors. A dialogue on race in America. Well, I uh, he he mentions the why, but uh, if you were looking at his career track, you'd say hmm, he's downwardly mobile. Uh, he's <laughs> gone from uh, being uh, in the Coast Guard and being in the security firm that you talk about and being at CIA to being a beat cop in Savannah, Georgia. Except he is downwardly mobile in that regard, but doing it for all the right reasons. Um, I I thought. The, the interesting part of what he's well, he said so many things, but that we are a nine one one nation. Yes. And that's actually a good way to get at this, it seems to me, because um, it's true. If I see a problem, I have been trained to dial nine one one, which means a police officer is going to show up. Now, that's OK. I understand the hesitancy from some people to dial one nine one one, knowing a police officer is going to come. That's also taking up the cop's time for something he's not really supposed to be doing he's supposed to be you know looking out for violent criminals not taking care of uh i don't know a dog up the tree to use an old uh, you know hack, hackneyed uh, uh, example uh, but that's true i've done it here where i've seen um somebody who i thought was caught in the wake here in florida about to be sucked out to sea i called 911 well they sent an ambulance and they sent police officers down or sheriff's officers here there's no need for them and the guy was taken care of and all that. So that that nine one one nation thing will stick with me for a while. That was very good. Yeah. You know, the other part of that, too. The other element that 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 connects with that, that is a bit more serious, is that people don't just call nine one one for trivial things or things that shouldn't be called uh, that nine one one shouldn't be called for. But they call for things that we've been trained to think that's what the cops or the police yes will fix. And that is a person out in a park that's drunk, that's acting crazy, or a person on the street in our neighborhood that's acting crazy. Yes, there should be a police presence there, but 
that's not necessarily something the police are best suited to deal with. It is crisis intervention people who, which includes a mental health component uh, and a social worker type social of worker, uh, type of person to deal with that kind of thing. Uh, and interesting that you mentioned this because I've been involved with an effort in my own neighborhood to try to bring this to bear because of some situations that have taken place within the last year uh, where the police are part of a team, but um, they're not the lead on the team. This, is, this, this, this thing is called a neighborhood action team, and it involves the police. It involves the county services like uh, people in the housing uh, code enforcement, people from you know the social work side, obviously, and people from mental health. Uh, there are people who are crisis intervention specialists who respond when people are having episodes. So it's a team effort that's 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 starting to take hold now. I'm not sure how long it would take for this to become a reality, but this is certainly it seems to be the the the, the direction that uh, folks are going in in this country to try to deal with this 911 nation we've come well and and i think that instead of defund the police maybe it's refund the police <laughs> but do a redistribute the money for policing because some and i think the police officers would appreciate that too because they're being called to situations that they are not trained to handle uh, and and frankly they're not needed for when what they really is needed is a social worker or um, you know, some kind of mental health care worker yeah. to take care of people like you're talking about. But because we're a 911 nation, we just call 911. So maybe there's a way those funds can be distributed. So the police have the funds they need to take care of violent criminals, but that there is another number, not 911, 811. I don't know, something that would be send somebody that's appropriate well, to take care of whatever's going on. I think in some places they have something like that. It's called 311. Yeah. And, um, it, you know, it probably varies from place to place. But, you know, there are some, some the germ of that idea, you know, is definitely taking hold in some places, I think. Yeah, but 311 is non-emergency, but it still ends up getting routed to the police officers uh, eventually. True. Um, I mean, I've I've called when I had um, power lines down in my yard back in Maryland. And I don't know if they're live or not live. Well, who do you call? And so I called 911. I said, I have no idea if they're live or not. But I, I actually, I think I did call 311. Eventually, though, a police officer came by and with a, somebody from the fire department to uh, to make sure, you know, take care of whatever the problem was. Yeah. But the 911 nation, that is a very important anecdote yeah. from, from Patrick Skinner. Right. Hey, I wanted to just do a quick, as we're recording this, it's uh, right after the president gave his speech to the nation. And, um, the, the Republican response was given by a guy from South Carolina who was a United States senator who happens to be black and a Republican. And his name is Tim Scott. And he came on. The, and we don't have to go over everything he said. But the one thing he said that really got me was he said, think about he says, I think about my grandfather, that in his lifetime, he has seen our family go from cotton to Congress. And I thought, Wow. That's a very impressive story. I mean, because you know what he means. They were probably sharecroppers, and now he's a United States senator. Um, and I thought, well, for all the times that you and I talk about where we haven't made progress, that's an area where we have. Sounded very similar to something we heard from Dr. Shelby Steele. And when I, when I, <laughs> so funny, I knew you were going to mention that because at, at the end, after watching it, uh, I thought to myself, 
huh, he and Shelby Steele would get along really well. So uh, uh, that's probably uh, that's probably a good way to end it. That's uh, that, that's good. You're right. They would. They they do come from the same place, and yeah. that, you know that's how you look at it. You either look at it as we've made a lot of progress with still more to go, or you can look at it as well, we have a lot of lot to do and yeah. what's happened has happened, but that's not enough. Yeah. And just, I guess it depends. And to be clear about it, I have a great deal of respect for Dr. Steele and I have an equal amount of respect for Senator Scott as well. Oh, I know. I we, think, I think Chubby Steele was one of your favorite interviews. We disagree about a whole lot oh, of yeah. things. That's okay. But you know, I, I still think they're remarkable people. I do too. I'm Chris Core, and I'm white. I'm J.J. Green, and I'm black. And this is Colors. Coming up in our next episode of Colors. Matt Fogle is the district attorney in Franklin County, Pennsylvania. My frustration um, going back um, to Memorial Day weekend last year is that when we talk about race, it's often after a flashpoint, after a police interaction. And my perspective is that that's always the focus and and not what seems to me, at least, to be a a much deeper rooted issue um, that, that we don't really ever dig down into a more fundamental issue. So he wrote a letter to the community called Black Lives Matter, period, full stop. I wrote it because I felt compelled. Um, I wanted to show support. I wanted to provide uh, some clarity to the community, and I wanted to promote um, unity um, in the community. He got the unity to some degree, but there were also unintended consequences, which we'll discuss fully. That's coming up in our next episode of Colors. Time to shut it down for this episode, and in doing so, we want to say thank you to Hillary Howard, Mike Chikaitis, Dimitri Sotis, Kara Boyd, Cortland Cox, Thetford Collins, Ron Pemberton, Julia Ziegler, Joel Oxley, Kesha Smith, Gabriel Franco, Audrey Henson, the WTOP social team. Also, thank you to Brennan Hazelton, Sean Anderson, Charles Height, Gina Bazemore, Ann Core. Thank you to Gretchen Soren. Joe Detrani, Peggy Byard, and Angelie Chong. A big thank you this week for the musicians, for Jesse Gallagher and Cosmic and Offshane. And a special thank you to you and all of our guests this week because Colors is the winner of the Edward R. Murrow Region 12 Award for Large Market Radio Podcast. That is a gigantic honor for us. We are tremendously gratified and humbled by this honor because we're not in it for the honors or the awards. We're in it to make a difference. But gosh, it does feel very good to be recognized. And finally, we want to thank you for listening and also to remind you, keep talking to each other. And just as important, keep listening to each other. You can subscribe to Colors on Apple, Spotify, Podcast One, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you have any questions or suggestions or ideas for our program, send us an email at thecolorspodcast at gmail.com. That's thecolorspodcast at gmail.com. This is Colors, a dialogue on race in America.